I invite you to turn in your Bible uh, this morning to the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation chapter 2. We are continuing our study of this rich unveiling by Christ and about Christ and His last words to the church, words that uh, are intended to both uh, comfort and challenge the church while God's people look for uh, the blessed hope. So we've been thinking a lot about the state of the church today, especially now that we've started into chapter 2 and are taking uh, one at a time each of these seven letters addressed to seven real first century churches in Asia Minor. Words from Jesus Christ, the head of the church, about various conditions that exist in the church and, and words that reveal His plan for the church, which is of utmost importance because, as we've said before, His opinion is the only opinion that uh, really that counts, uh, that, that matters. So in John's account of the Revelation, we have Jesus dictating seven letters to seven churches. Now think about that. Can you imagine Jesus writing a letter to our church? What would that be like? If Jesus visited our church, what would He say about it? Would Christ be impressed with the same things that we are impressed by? Would Christ be grieved by the things that grieve us? Would He mention the size of our congregation? Uh, Would he feel like an outsider, or would he feel welcome? The reality is most pastors feel a bit nervous when someone says, I visited your church last Sunday, and... (laughs) And it's what comes after the and that worries us. But but what what if Jesus dropped by? What if he himself dropped by? Would the preacher wish that he had worked harder on his sermon? Yes. The answer is yes. Would the worship team wish they had taken more time to pray and prepare? Would the married couple wish they had worked through that conflict before walking in the door? Would the young person wish that he or she had made a different decision about what they did Friday night? Would some wish that they had not chosen that Sunday to miss church. Many years ago, John Stott wrote a little book called What Christ Thinks of the Church, based on these these seven royal letters in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. The book itself is, is excellent, but it's really the title that catches our attention. What does Jesus think about the church? What does He think about our church? Well, thankfully, we're not left to wonder about the larger question, because in these seven letters, our Lord pays, if you will, a pastoral visit uh, with these, uh, to these seven different local churches, and in each case, sort of tailors a message fitted to that particular congregation in that place at that moment in history. In a way... Reading Revelation chapters 2 and 3 is like reading someone else's mail. In fact, I had a discussion with someone a couple of weeks ago about this, that because these letters were, uh, this, this, this uh, revelation was being uh, uh, circulated beginning when, in Ephesus, that, 
that the churches were reading not just the letter to their church, but they were also reading the letters to the other churches. And so they were seeing and hearing not only the things that Christ had to say in the way of commendation as well as condemnation about their own congregation and their own fellowship, but what he was saying in the way positive and negative about these other churches as well. So these are real churches filled with real people struggling with real problems. And though 2,000 years ago separate us from them, our issues are not much different from theirs. As we go through these seven letters, we will hopefully see the churches of our day, our, our own church, and ourselves in a new light. And we need this. We need this insight because it's easy to think that as long as the church is busy and as long as we all just show up, that everything must be okay and all is well. But as we've discovered already, and as we will notice again this morning, that may not be the case. So what is Jesus looking for when he comes to church? These seven letters provide important answers to that question. Uh, So far, we've considered the, the first two of these, as I mentioned, the first two of these seven letters, the one from Christ to the church at Ephesus, The church that was busy, we said, falling out of love with Christ, or you might call it the loveless church, the kind of church that really has existed in every age and does today, those those churches that may have the right message, but they are just cold and indifferent about the message, and they need to, as we saw there in that letter to them, they need to repent, those churches need to repent and be revived in their love for Jesus and for one another. We also looked at the second letter, the one to the church in Smyrna. This was the church that was faithful, we said, in, in the jaws of death. Faithful in the, the jaws of death. We might say the suffering church, the persecuted church that had been purged and purified. So this, this was the church under persecution. We said the persecuted, poor, little, rich church, right? You remember the comment there that Jesus made about them being in a sense, materially impoverished, but spiritually wealthy and well-to-do. So though this, though this particular church was squeezed and, and gashed and slandered, yet there was this fragrant and victorious aroma that was coming from that along with true faith, true faith in our Lord. Well, this morning we're interested in this third letter, the one to the church in Pergamum. The church that was willing to die for Christ, but not to deal with compromise. The church that was, you might say, mixing truth with error, or the church that was catering to to the world. Now, let me read our text for us. This is Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Again, I'm reading here from the New American Standard Bible. Verse 12 says, And to the church... The angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. 
Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. As I mentioned the last couple of times, the structure of these letters is very similar with some minor differences, and we've tried to point out the similarities and point out those differences along the way. This particular one opens up much like the other two giving, uh, by giving us the location of the church and telling us something about the author, namely Jesus Christ. It starts out, you'll notice there in verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says, this. Again, as we work, we work our way through this particular passage and just trying to kind of organize our thoughts, I want to break this down for us this morning and, and move through these fairly quickly, but break it down into nine parts, nine parts. And we'll begin with this as we did the last couple of times, just starting with the location of the church, the location of the church, which of course is the city of Pergamum or Pergamos. Uh, either is correct, one being the neuter form and the other being the feminine uh, form of, of the name. Uh, Pergamos was a, was a city in, in Western Asia Minor, or as we've said, in modern-day Turkey. This was just north of Smyrna and about 15 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. So the order of these letters follows the route that would have been taken to deliver them. So Ephesus being the starting point, and then on to Smyrna, and then north another 50 miles or so to the city of Pergamos, which is the town today named Bergama, which is sort of the, the Turkish corruption of that, of that ancient name. And Pergamos was known for, for many things. Uh, for a period of time, it was the, the capital of the Roman province of Asia. Uh, it was also a city that was famous for its library and for its, its beautiful architecture. Uh, art and literature were a big part of that society. They were encouraged. And then housed there was this uh, library of uh, over 200,000 volumes, which later Antony had sent to Egypt as a gift for Cleopatra. You just think about the, sh- the size of a, of a library like that with, with, with those things being essentially handwritten. 200,000 handwritten volumes. Many of those books were a parchment, a writing material developed from animal skin. Apparently, parchment was developed and distributed from this particular area, hence the word parchment, which is derived from the name of this particular town, Pergamos. So in ancient times, the city was noted for its parchment as well as for its ointments and for its pottery. Pergamos also contained a complex of elaborate temples. You had a temple um, to uh, Zeus uh, and the famous altar to Zeus, uh, which was 40 feet in height. You had temples to Athena. The Athena was the, was the victory-bearing goddess. You had the, the temple dedicated to Dion, uh, Dionysus, the god of drunkenness and in, in, in debauchery, and also to uh, Asclepios, who was the god of medicine in ancient Greek mythology and represented the healing aspect of the medical arts. You may be familiar with, with this, um, with this uh, rod, they call it the, the rod of uh, Asclepius, 
It was a, a snake-entwined staff that remains even today as a symbol of medicine. So to, to the temple of this particular hero, invalids from all parts of Asia flocked, and there, while they were sleeping in the court, the gods supposedly revealed to the priest and to the physicians by means of dreams the remedies which were necessary to heal their illnesses and their maladies. Thus, opportunities of deception were numerous. And there was a school of medicine in connection with that particular temple. So all of these things were there in, in Pergamos. And then to add to that, there were, there were temples to some Roman emperors. In fact, this was the first city in the ancient Roman world to build a temple to Caesar. That particular temple was erected in 29 BC in honor of Augustus along with the goddess Roma, which we mentioned last time in talking about the church in Smyrna. So by the time the Apostle, Paul, Apostle John penned this book of the Revelation, emperor worship had reached the point of cultic form where the emperor was no longer seen as, as simply a political or a military leader, but as a god. In fact, of all the cities in Asia Minor, this was the one most given over to Caesar worship. Robert Thomas notes, he says, In other cities, a Christian might be in danger on only one day a year when a pinch of incense had to be burned in worship to the emperor. In Pergamum, however, Christians were in danger every day of the year for the very same reason. Of course, you could worship other deities, but you still had to worship Caesar, which obviously made it, made it tough for Christians who didn't worship Caesar at all and, and would not make any religious offering to, to him. As a consequence, they would lose their rights as citizens, forfeiting privileges and possessions, and in some cases, even their lives. Now, what about the history of the church? That's a little bit about the, just the location and the, 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 the history of that particular area. But what about the history of the church itself? How did the church start? Well, again, we don't know, exa- don't know the exact specifics of that. We, we do know, according to Acts chapter 16, that Paul traveled through this area. A Pergamos was, was in a region of Asia Minor called Mysia. And in Acts chapter 16, verse 8, it says that Paul passed through there on his second missionary journey. So he could have affected some gospel ministry that brought some people to Christ in that city. Perhaps that happened, uh, maybe not. Uh, But as I mentioned last time, we definitely know that during his third missionary journey, that the word was going out from the city of Ephesus to every part of Asia Minor. And it's more likely that a church was founded in Pergamos at that time. But it was a very pagan atmosphere. And in the middle of this was situated this little church to which Christ addressed this letter. In fact, in verse 13, you'll note that he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. That is to say, Satan had his operations all over the world, but he's, it's as if John, uh, Jesus is saying, but, but Satan has got his throne there in Pergamos, which is quite a statement. So make no mistake, 
Satan's throne is not in hell. It, it, is, it is in this world. This is, this is the field, if you will, of his operation. His, and his power was being unleashed from that city. And, and some in that Christian fellowship had fallen victim to Satan and become thoroughly engulfed and even, you might say, even married to the world. Frankly, it's, it's not persecution, but it's this kind of compromise that is the fastest way to destroy the church's life and testimony. As one writer puts it, if Satan cannot defeat the church by attacking it, he will defeat the church by joining it. And so that's really what was going on in this church, is it wasn't, it was, it was more about this, this, this uh, compromising with, with the world, this worldliness that was beginning to creep into the church that was causing so many problems. And that really brings us to the identification of the author. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, though the Apostle John was one, the one writing these letters to the messengers from each church, John is not really the author of the correspondence. The author is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he identifies himself to the church in this way. He says of himself that he is the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword, which takes us back to the vision of Jesus Christ back in chapter 1, verse 16, where it states that in his right hand, this is speaking of Christ, in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. So the Lord is described as holding the leadership of the church in his right hand, the the seven stars being the seven messengers or the seven uh, leading elders or pastors, one from each of the seven churches, And they're in the right hand of Christ, that place of strictest accountability and and, and a place of protection and a place of delegated authority because it is through these men that Christ directs His church. And verse 16 says that out of His mouth comes constantly, all of the time, a sharp, large-blade, two-edged sword. The images of Christ's pronouncement of judgment against His church's enemies, whether they are inside the church or outside the church. And that sword is directed at those who who trouble or undermine or, or even, in some cases, assault His church. So the idea here is that Christ will judge them. This is about the punishing power of Christ's word and the defeat of his enemies. This is a sword of judgment. And its two-edged character simply means that it moves swiftly and, and rapidly and wreaks havoc in both directions. It cuts everywhere it turns. And so this introduction that we have of Christ in this particular letter is not a happy one. It's not... It's not a comforting one. It is a, it is a threatening one. Why? Because this is a church that was facing judgment. You might say this. Disaster was looming on the horizon for this church. And we'll see the reason for that in just, just a moment. But let's move on to the commendation. The commendation 
from Christ. And it's interesting as you go through these letters that this is what normally happens in the letters. If there is, if there is a word of commendation, it usually precedes the word of criticism, right? Which is just a, uh, um, it's, it's a practical thing. It's, it's, a, it's a wise thing, I think, that any time we're going to bring criticism or we're going to bring some sort of rebuke to someone, that if there is something positive we can say, right? If there's something that we can build upon and say, hey, let me tell you about these things in your life that are good, Right? You try to do this even with your children, right? You try to say, listen, we've seen this, we've seen, these are your good things. But then there's this thing we got to talk about, right? And so this is exactly what Christ does. If there is something to say that's positive, he says it, and that's exactly what takes place here. And so he does commend them. It's not all bad. And so in verse 13, Jesus says that what, what he had already said to the Ephesian church and the church in Smyrna, and that is, I know. This is that re- re- refrain. We keep seeing this over and over again. As the Lord of the church, Jesus says, I know. As the one who has, has eyes like a flame of fire, I know. I see and understand everything that is going on and everything about you. And in this case, notice what he says in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So Jesus says, I know. And not only that, but as I said last time, Jesus isn't just saying, I know these things, but he's saying, if you you can think of it this way, Jesus is saying to these churches, I know these things about you, and I want you to know that I know these things about you. And what are these things? Well, in this particular case, he says, I want you to know that I know these three very important realities. First, I know where you are living Second, I know what you are facing. Third, I know how you are living. I know where you are living, I know what you are facing, and I know how you are living. Now, what about where they live? Well, obviously, Christ was aware of their physical location, right? Their settled residence in that city. But he also says that he knew that they were dwelling where Satan was dwelling, which speaks more to their circumstances and the threat that they were facing by being in that particular community. So what what does that mean? Well, it means that satanic power was manifest right out of that city. You'll remember last time we saw how in Smyrna, Satan had a synagogue, right? You'll remember this back in verse 9. And the synagogue of Satan was this base of Jews who had rejected their Messiah King and were maliciously and slanderously attacking the body of Christ. And so so they had persecuted the Lord Jesus and were now going after His followers. And for that, they are called a synagogue, not of God, but but of their father, the devil. But in Pergamos, there wasn't just a synagogue of Satan. His very throne was there, a throne which he controlled, a throne which he energized. And the throne of Satan was this Gentile base of false religions which made the city of Pergamos Satan's base of operations, or you might say his headquarters. And not only that, but this word throne was also used to speak of something in a personal private residence. Uh, a chair that was used for the Lord of the house. And so the very fact that Christ would use this word meant that Satan felt at home there. 
He sat on a throne there and was master of that house. Now, why was that the case? Well, again, the people of Pergamos were known as the temple keepers of Asia. The city had three temples dedicated to the worship of the Roman emperor, another for the goddess of Athena and the great altar of Zeus, the king of the Greek gods, which some believe is a direct reference to the throne of Satan because it was sort of shaped like a, uh, a huge throne and was set on the Acropolis, which was the, this, 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 the high place there in the city. And that is certain, certainly a possibility. But I think it's more likely a combination of all of these things. The worship of Caesar that flowed from Pergamos out into the Roman world, the massive altar to Zeus and all that, repre- all that represented as, as Zeus was the head of the Greek pantheon, and then there is this, this other interesting element in all of this, that was that, and that was the worship of Asclepios, who was, as I mentioned, the god of healing and was known all over the ancient world as the Pergamese god, the one most associated with the city of Pergamos and whose image rivaled the fame of Diana at the city of Ephesus. Actually, in, in Homer's Iliad, Uh, Asclepios was a man, uh, a physician, to soldiers that were wounded on the battlefield at Troy. But by Hippocrates' day, he, he had become elevated to the status of a god, or more accurately, Asclepios was a demigod. He he was born of a divine father, Apollo, and a mortal mother, Coronis, who was a nymph and the princess of Thessaly. Asclepios, the story goes, became so skilled in surgery and the use of medicinal plants that he could even restore the dead to life. This is what they believed in Pergamos. They worshipped him. Consequently, the city also had a healing center called the Asclepion, which was built in honor of Asclepios, which was a cross between, you might say it was a combination between a, a hospital and a health spa where patients could get everything from a mud bath to major surgery. Even the emperors came all the way from Rome to be treated there, but this was no ordinary doctor's visit. Patients would enter in through this underground tunnel and then they would drink a sedative and then they would spend the night in the dormitories of this Asclepion while non-poisonous snakes crawled around them all night. They were told that the serpent god Asclepios would speak to them in their dreams and give them a diagnosis. So it was believed that the snakes carried the healing power of Asclepios, and if a snake slithered across you while you were sleeping at night, that was a divine sign that healing power was coming to you. The next morning, the patients told their dreams to the priest who prescribed their treatments. And finally, the patients would make clay sculptures of the body parts that needed healing and offered them to Asclepios in worship. Interestingly, if you were a terminal patient, you were not allowed to go into the Asclepion because these priests didn't want anyone hearing that someone had died in there. In fact, there was a huge sign just above the official entrance that said, death is not permitted here. So the only way that you were going to get in to begin with is if they knew that you were going to live at least for one night. 
Because they didn't want you to go in there and there'd be all of this hype, right, that surrounded this, this pagan worship and idolatry, and then to find out that someone died in there, right? So they didn't want the bad press. And so they would, there, was a, there was a selection process, if you will. And they would discriminate. And that's where these believers were living. In the middle of that citadel of paganism with its satanic idolatry and worship of Caesar, which if you think about it, this, this worship of Caesar may be the worst kind of idolatry. Because rather than just making up these, if you will, gods that you can't see, right? I mean, we just make one up and say, here, there's this God and here's this, this, this story about him and here's all the things that he did and how he came to be and what he can do and the power that he has. But sort of getting it out of the unseen world and getting into something that is more tangible. That is the danger here going on with the Caesar worship because what you have in that form of idolatry is mankind worshiping mankind. You have this grotesque worship of man, energized by Satan's cheap earthly authority. And it's the worst kind of idolatry, in in part because it is tangible. When mankind sets himself up on his own throne and tells other men to worship him, we are looking into the face of our own kind and calling it deity. And it's self-perpetuating because you think about it, the more that I see that man who became a god, whom I worship, the more I want to be and the more that I believe that I can be like that man. This is perhaps the greatest of Satan's deceptive work. And for that, Pergamos is evil central, right? Evil central. Central, And Christ knew all of that. And he was very aware of the intensity of that battle. He knew that Satan had set up his enterprise there and that this little flock was feeling the heat of that. But as we pointed out last time, true saving faith is not fragile. Only false faith is fragile. So even though there were some who attached themselves to the church and were being sucked into the world, most in the church were doing well enough to be commended, to be commended for remaining faithful to Christ. Why? Because true faith is indestructible. True faith survives everything, even the onslaughts of hell itself. And so Christ says, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. And then he says, I also know that you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. In other words, you've been faithful to me, holding fast my name, present tense, continuing to do that, holding fast to my identity as God incarnate and my salvific work at Calvary, and you did not deny my faith. You did not deny my truth. You never deviated from the gospel and never wavered in your fidelity. You stayed true. You you stood boldly for me, even, and notice what it says, in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, we don't know much about this Antipas. Maybe he was, uh, some believe he was a leader in the church. Maybe the pastor, one of the elders of the church. What we do know is that he was Christ, and the term here for witness is martus, his faithful witness, 
who paid the ultimate price and was killed in their midst. That is to say, they saw it. Christ saw this man's commitment. The church saw and witnessed this man's commitment. They saw his commitment. They followed the example of his commitment to Christ and to his truth. And so that was the Lord's commendation. That by and large, the church at Pergamos was faithful. But like the church in Ephesus, there were some problems. And out of love and out of care for His people, Christ had to address them. And so we have next this criticism from Christ. Verse 14, But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. And so also you also have some who in the very same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So what is Christ saying? Well, he's saying, this is what I have against you, that you have some people there in the church, not, not teachers from abroad, but right there in the congregation, you have people in the church who hold the teaching of Balaam and those who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, and you are allowing it to continue. You're not dealing with it. You're allowing them to feel comfortable. You have people in the church who are married to the world that haven't come out of the world and you're allowing them to feel easy. Not that you as a whole have adhered to these forms of false teaching or doctrine, but you've been indifferent to those within the church who are in sympathy with those doctrines. Now, what were these heresies? Well, first you have the teaching of of Balaam, and you can go back really starting in Numbers chapter 22, and you read the account of Balaam, the alleged prophet of God who who refused the request of Balak, the king of Moab, to curse God's people, to curse Israel, but who ultimately betrayed his calling by advising Balak that Israel would forfeit God's protection if he could induce them to worship idols, which he did. And this seduction uh, resulted in the death of 24,000 of God's people who fell into idolatrous worship and practices. And that is what Jesus, I think, is emphasizing in the letter to this church. That Balaam taught Balak how to put a stumbling block into the path of Israel. The word for stumbling block here is scandalon or, or trap. Or really, more precisely, it's that part of the trap that you place the bait that when touched, it triggers the trap to close on its prey. And so what Balaam did is Balaam taught Balak how to lead Israel into apostasy by capitalizing on the seductive activity of the Moabite women, deliberately placing them in the way of the unsuspecting people of Israel for the purpose of causing their downfall. And like the ancient Israelites, some at Pergamum had been enticed into taking part in various pagan and idolatrous feasts and the immorality that accompanied them or the fornication that was an inescapable consequence of these feasts. That is to say, these Balaamites at Pergamos taught others to relax their principles 
the way that Balaam in the Old Testament did, urging them to compromise with the lax standards of the world. So this is really about religious, we call it syncretism, right? It's, a, it's about combining differing or opposing forms of belief or practice. And so these individuals in the church were pushing, if you will, you might call it integrationism, pushing for integrationism rather than a clean break with, the, with this particular aspect of pagan worship, which admittedly was a difficult thing for Christians to do because such feasts were an integral part of social life in the city. So that was the teaching of Balaam. What about the teaching of the Nicolaitans? Well, the teachings of this group were similarly an attempt to reach a compromise between the Christian life and the cultural customs of the Greco-Roman world and culture and society. The Nicolaitans, or the followers of one named Nicholas, represented an excessively liberal or even antinomian outlook with regard to Christianity. What you had here with Nicholas in the New Testament appears to be much like what you had with Balaam in the Old Testament. So who exactly is this Nicholas? Well, some of the early church writers, including Irenaeus, said that it was one of the men appointed, interestingly, in Acts chapter 6 to help resolve the problem with the distribution of food to the widows. And so he claimed, along with other church historians and writers, that this man, Nicholas, was one who became an apostate. He was one chosen in the book of Acts, but then became later an apostate, but because of his credentials, was allowed to come in and to lead the church astray. So in other words, this guy had changed and deviated from sound doctrine, but because he had this, uh, he was chosen early in the life of the church for that particular task that he was sort of using that as a way to get his foot in the door with the church. Now, others say that it wasn't Nicholas himself who went bad, but that it was a really a group of people that claimed to be his followers, but that had distorted and misrepresented his views. And so that's a possibility. In other words, they were taking his name in order for, to, to have some leverage, right? To say, oh, we're with this particular guy, as if in the, in the Corinthian church, we're of Apollos, right? We're of Peter, we're of Paul. So they would say, oh, we're of Nicholas, when the reality was that what they were pre- presenting was not really faithful to what Nicholas taught and believed. That's a possibility. For sure we know that that those in this group were involved in immorality and uncleanness and that they plied the church with sensual temptations. Clement of Alexander said, quote, They abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence, end quote. So they were involved in immorality and loose living. They replaced Christian liberty with sinful license and perverted the teaching of grace. And this was Christ's concern or criticism. Not that these two forms of error existed, but that they existed in the church without challenge. That the church wasn't calling a spade a spade. That its members weren't willing to guard the purity of the church. And he's saying, this is what I have against you, that you have this going on in the church. You have people in the church who are married to the world that haven't come out of the world and you're allowing them to feel secure and relaxed. It really is a remarkable situation if you think about it. It's as if they said, 
I personally will never back down, even if it means my death. On the other hand, perhaps we need to be less rigid and a bit more tolerant when it comes to those who draw different conclusions about the practical and moral implications of God's grace. So it's this, it was this weird mix of, on the one hand, I'm willing to die and not deny who Christ is, but then on the other hand, this sort of, it, it, it's as if they were closing one door and then they were opening up a back door, right? And, and it was very similar. If you think about what Balaam did, it's as if Balaam, because he didn't want to violate the expectations of what a prophet would do, it's as if Balaam said, I can't curse God's people. Oh, but you could do this. It's like on the one hand, he was trying to stay firm, but then on the other hand, he was creating this open opportunity for compromise. It's astounding. And Christ says, basically, I I won't have it. I won't have it. Which is why we find this strong exhortation from Christ. Strong exhortation from Christ in verse 16. It's simply this, folks. Repent. We've seen this already in the church in Ephesus. Repent. So, So in light of his complaint... Christ enjoins the church to repent, to to repent because they were guilty of unjustified tolerance. And he admonishes them to own up to their indifference to this heretical development in the church. So it's as if Pergamum's or Pergamos' weakness was the opposite of the one in Ephesus. That is the jealous guarding of doctrine at the expense of love. Don't forget that the Ephesian church was commended for their intolerance of morally bad men and their hatred of any perversion of the true gospel. Not being so naive or foolish to suppose that Christian charity and love can tolerate false teachers or false teaching. You remember this back in Revelation chapter 2 verse 6, Christ said of the Ephesians, yet this you do have. Now remember, this is a commendation from him to that church. This you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. So Pergamum's weakness was the opposite in that they elevated love above truth. Christ calls the church to demonstrate its genuineness by turning from its leniency toward those who had, be- who had become a part of this local fellowship, but who believed that you could somehow hold fast to the name of Christ and the gospel and at the very same time hold fast to pagan idolatry and immorality or Caesar worship, worshiping the abilities and the strength or the wisdom of man. And so Christ calls them to deal with the uncleanness in her midst because failure to do so would mean serious consequences for them, which is why Jesus strengthens his plea for immediate action with this threat of punishment if the church fails to purge itself. And we have this warning. We have this warning to the unrepentant. Verse 16, the second part, Therefore repent, notice what he says, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Here's the idea. Christ says, My coming is imminent. You need to deal with those who hold this false doctrine. Because if you don't, I will deal with them when I come, but I will also deal with you. Because your toleration of them makes you guilty by association. Then once again, we have this very familiar command to heed, 
our eighth point here, the command to heed, verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is to say, don't miss this. Behold, you've got to hear this message, these words that are inspired by the Spirit, that are written by John, but given by Christ. You've got to take them to heart. You've got to believe them. You've got to trust them. And then finally, this promise to the overcomer. He says, to him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. To the Christian, to every true believer, to the one who from the beginning of his or her faith in Christ to the end of life stands victorious because he or she keeps on overcoming whatever the enemy has to offer. I will give, Christ says, some of the hidden manna. Of course, manna was was the food supplied by God to the Israelites during their long journey from Egypt to the promised land. But Jesus Christ is the true manna, the living bread that comes down from above, according to John chapter 6. So this is likely referring to our intimate fellowship and communion with Christ and that heavenly banquet that awaits all true believers at the end of this age. And he will also give every Christian a white stone, such as a tessera, which was a small block of uh, sometimes wood or stone or metal used in construction or, or in a mosaic. But in ancient Greece and Rome was a small piece or tablet of wood or bone that was used as a token. In other words, he will give each faithful believer a personalized tessera, which would serve as a token of admission to this great future feast, a stone which has on it the recipient's own name, one that is qualitatively new, one that reflects their new status as belonging to Christ and those personal signs and personal marks of Christ's peculiar relationship with that individual which no one else is acquainted And you can see all these three things and how they fit together. One day, every Christian will be accepted into the presence of Christ to enjoy sweet fellowship according to our new status in Him. Like a bride waiting with anticipation, ready to receive a new name and identity and to enter into a richer, deeper relationship with the one whom she loves. That is the promise that Christ gives to His people. That is the promise. But we must contend. We must contend. We must strive. We must not give in to the pressure to conform to the world and to compromise because there's no question, folks, these things are still going on today, right? People in the church that are saying it's okay to intermingle with the pagan system, that we're not to be separate, that we're not to be aliens in this this world and on this on this globe, that we are to get involved in life around us to the fullest extent, mixing the old patterns, mixing the old morals, or lack of the old idolatry with the new Christianity. Of course, our Lord has called for a clean break. But there are always the seducers. There are always those who come in and want to get God's people to water down the standard, and to mingle more with the world. And Christ condemns such a union.
In fact, it reminds us of 2 Corinthians where Paul says this in chapter 6, verse 14, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. It goes on in chapter 7, verse 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In Pergamos, there were... There were some people in the church saying, you can be a Christian and worship idols. You can be a Christian and commit fornication. You can be a Christian and go to the parties and the orgies and the festivals and the feasts and worship man as God and still come here and pay your homage to Jesus. They were pushing that. And what's worse, the church was doing little about it. And again, we're not talking about personal preferences. We're talking about believers engaging in things that were either clear violations of God's moral law or things that were obviously sucking them back into idolatry. Abuses of Christian freedom. Things that were making weaker brothers and sisters stumble. Things that were conjuring all the old life patterns. And Christ says, enough is enough. What we have, by and large, in the church today are professing Christians who want to push the limits when it comes to their liberties, who want to get as close to the world and as close to sin as they can without actually crossing the line. The problem is they're not that smart, and they're not that careful. Jesus says, you cannot tolerate evil in any form. You cannot allow it. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul said what? A little leaven leavens what? The whole lump. The whole lump of dough. You allow false teaching. You allow idolatry. You allow immorality. You allow sin, and it festers, and it grows. So the church must be in constant judgment on teaching. There's no room for compromise. Uh, The church, in spite of what... All of the church experts say in our culture, the church is not designed for unbelievers to come and to say whatever they want and to live however they live and be accepted as they are. It is designed for God's people to hold the truth and unbelievers to come and to hear the truth and in hearing be saved. The church should never be a place where unbelievers feel safe and comfortable and as if, they, uh, as if they fit in. It should always be a place where unbelievers feel fearful, though welcome, where they feel conviction, though loved, where they can hear the truth and be changed. Not that we're holding the Word and its authority over them, But we are holding the Word and its authority over all of us, over our heads and theirs, because we all must give an account. Of course, we want to reach out to the lost. 
Of course, we want them to experience our love and our kindness and our grace, but never at the expense of giving them the false security that they belong until they have come to know Christ, a knowing, by the way, that is manifested in their life. So, folks, we don't want to be a compromising church. I mean, these are all warnings to us. As I said, these are, these are, these are things, there are elements in every one of these seven churches that, that they're all here, right? There are pockets of these things here, even within our own congregation. And we've got to, we've got to learn these lessons, right? And when Christ is commending these churches for certain things, we've got to take note of that and say, we need to be praying about that. We need to be praying for that kind of, those kind of qualities, to mark us, not only as a, as, a, as, a, as a body of believers, but even in our own personal lives. And when Christ says, and this is, these are frightening words, when Christ says, I have this against you, I mean, our antenna ought to be up <laughs> saying, we need to be careful about these things. We, wanna, we, we don't want to be a compromising church. We want to deal with error in our fellowship. We want to deal with hypocrisy in our lives. We want to deal with inconsistencies in our, in our church. We want our faith to be real, to hold fast to the name of Christ, to be true believers, overcomers, who someday soon will be given Jesus Christ in all of His fullness as the hidden manna and admission into the eternal feast of heaven and on that white stone a special message privately from our living Savior to those that He loves. Let's stand for prayer. Before we pray, let me just, let me just say, no, there's no doubt that there are some here this morning in our midst that are living out in their lives the doctrine of Balaam, living out the teachings of the Nicolaitans. There are some of you who are here that, as far as anyone else knows, You are here today worshiping Christ. But when you leave this place, you go right back to the immorality. You go right back to the worldliness. You go right back to the the idolatry. This message is as much for you as it is for us. So if you don't know Jesus Christ, the hidden manna is not yours. And the white stone is not yours. And all you can expect is the sword of His judgment. And so, in light of that reality, our plea with you is that if you don't know Christ, that you would do just as Jesus commanded, that you would repent. That you would repent before the Lord comes and makes war with you. And to the church, may we not grow weary in the struggle for purity and fidelity. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for its conviction and its converting power. Lord, we know that you are grieved by both the waywardness of the few as well as the, the nonchalance and the leniency of the majority. That you are offended when we do not care that the truth is being challenged or even eclipsed in the church when Christ's name is dishonored and His faith denied. Father, we admit that in our own hearts and the flesh, we are all syncretists. We all struggle, Lord, with, with breaking away, with coming out from the world and being holy unto You. We, we admit, Lord, that we struggle with that, with that. And yet, Lord, in, 
uh, in our hearts by your Spirit, we pray that you would keep us from being unsettled because we're afraid to suffer or simply because we're tired of the struggle. Lord, help us to stop hearkening back to the culture. Even, Lord, for us in our own day, if there is to come a growing disdain, as we've already seen these things, but a growing disdain of the gospel, Lord, if the hostility is coming, help us to know that Christ is enough and that what He supplies is enough. Keep us from the snares of idolatry. Keep us from the snares and the trap of immorality. And help us to be faithful witnesses, just as Christ was the faithful witness. We praise you in his name. Amen.